who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm Monica Estrella Negra, and I am joined here by two of my lovely co-hosts, Hello, hello, this is Essie Flinor. Super pumped to be here today. And I'm here with another of our hosts. You know, it's so good to meet you two. I've heard so much about you, <laughs> and I'm so glad to be here. I literally live downstairs from you. <laughs> That's you then. Okay. Now I see. <laughs> You're that, Monica? Oh, my God. Oh, I'm so jealous. Whenever y'all are like, we're doing this neighbor thing. I'm like, screw you. I'm moving in. (laughs) Well, be that as it may. (laughs) We have a wonderful guest here today who I am very excited to introduce. This is Alina Pete. Hey, everybody. Tanse, Namoya Alina Pete. I am from uh, Little Pine First Nation in Saskatchewan, Canada. And, uh, yeah, I'm a role-playing gamer, writer, cartoonist, uh, LARPer, (laughs) all-around nerd. Sweet. And you live where it's even colder than it is in Minnesota, where Monica and I are. Mm -hmm. I got got so many stories about minus 40 winters, let me tell you. Mm. (laughs) Lord have mercy. Yeah, we were crying at much, much less. Than <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like negative two. And I was just like, yep, I'm over it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I fled Saskatchewan. I'm out in uh, on the West Coast now. I'm out in BC. So it's a little warmer here. Oh, I see. I see. Negative yeah. 40 is a little warmer. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's not bad. It like barely gets down to freezing. I forget what that is in Fahrenheit. Oh, geez. Just balmy. Yeah. I was like, which one's Fahrenheit? (laughs) Wait, I don't even know which one's freezing in there. You know what? I wish I hadn't said anything. 30? I don't remember. Minus 40 is the cheat because it's minus 40 in both. So that's always my go to. Oh. 
bitches on comics when we don't understand degrees. We are Americans. Yeah. <laughs> How to say you're American without saying you're American. What is what is the metric system? Honestly, I was having a discussion with my editor earlier where I was like, it's actually really bad being Canadian because like I I have to go through all my manuscripts and make sure that I've used the right spellings and uh, um, units for everything. Because <laughs> I just do it randomly. I'm like, I don't remember what the Canadian spelling is. This sounds right. Uh, it's fine. The United States is ass backwards. Like, <laughs> we do everything that nobody else in the world does. Why? I don't know. We're the ones. And then we act like it's everybody else. I know. And then we're just worse. like, how dare everybody be different? <laughs> USA something. I, don't know. <laughs> I hate it here. <laughs> oh, you've all decided upon something? Well, we've decided to do whatever the opposite of it is. <laughs> and that's what we're rolling with. Because freedom. <laughs> freedom. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we are starting nice and light today. <laughs> God, we were just discussing the weather. I love that all three of us are like, you know what? Hard pass. This whole country, hard pass. Yeah, you know. Well, Alina, uh, tell us a little bit more about your comics career because I have been. Uh, you know, doing my research and been very excited to see so many years of Wear Geeks, which we will have to talk about, obviously. Uh, but then also you've got a lot of different projects going on. And of course, we'll dig into Woman in the Woods, the reason we're here today. But I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you got into comics. What is it that you like about comics? Where do you, What do you see your role as? As a comic creator, uh, you know, as philosophical or practical as you feel like being today. Sure, it's, it's sure. It's still tourist season, so you can take it practical. Okay, let's do this. Um, I originally didn't want to be in comics. Uh, I love comics growing up, but I didn't read a lot of mainstream comics uh, because uh, various people in my family disagreed with the idea of like, why are there so many boobs on the covers of these comics that you're reading? Why can't you read something nicer? Uh, so I was allowed to read like Archie comics and Sonic the Hedgehog and stuff like that. Um, but I found that Mango was a nice cheat because many of the characters on the cover just look like sweet little kids. And that's great for a 14-year-old to read. Um, so I got really into Mango for a while. Uh, <laughs> and then the horny interiors. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, don't open that, Grandma. Nope. <laughs> do, do, not, do not open that book, please. <laughs> just look at the cover. Just look it's at fine. the cover. It's great. It's good. Uh, so I originally wanted to be an animator. And I went to animation school um, straight out of uh, high school because I had big dreams of working for Disney. Uh, and then I, um, took a year off to go traveling. And when I got back, my animation school had fallen apart. <laughs> so I went, well, I'd like to still practice my skills. Uh, there's no other animation school on the prairies. So maybe I'll try drawing this web comic thing that I've heard about that I read a few of online. That's a good way to practice and make sure I like update several times a week, every week, forever. Uh, and then 15 years passed and I had been doing Wear Geek for really a long time. Um, so yeah, and then uh, while I was doing that, I was like, I like Wear Geek. It's a, a comic that's about uh, role-playing games and the people who play them. Um, there's a little bit of slice of life. But I was like, this is fun, but I have so many other stories I want to tell, and a lot of those have to do with being Indigenous. And that was something that I didn't really explore in Wear Geek. So I started doing um, shorter stories and um, like 10 to 12 page uh, um, short story uh, comics that I started submitting to anthologies. Uh, so I think my first one was a little local uh, printer uh, comics collective in town here called uh, Cloudscape Comics. And I did a story about 
um, two indigenous cowboys riding dinosaurs in the badlands around Drumheller. And it was sort of a YA book uh, for an anthology called Megafauna, uh, because I am obsessed with dinosaurs as well. Uh, so that kind of got me started on my whole anthology track. And since then, I've um, been in several anthologies. Uh, the latest one that's coming out is A Howl, which I just got the uh, printing update on that one. I'm excited to see that. Um, and then a couple years ago, my friend Kel, who was one of the co-editors on uh, The Woman in the Woods, approached me and was like, so we've been doing this book uh, series called Cautionary Fables that are fables set from around the world. So there's the, the first one was the European stories. They've done Africa, Asia, Oceania, and now they wanted to do North America. But they were like, we would like someone who is indigenous to be involved with this because we're going to be telling indigenous stories. And I went, that is a great idea. How about, how about I uh, um, come on and I'll, I'll help you navigate that because indigenous stories can be kind of a tricky waters to run around in. Um, all of the stories uh, don't belong to any individual person, but they belong to the nations that tell them. So I knew that there was a whole bunch of protocol to, to get through if we were going to try and publish these uh, stories in a printed format. That was one of the things that I was curious about with that, because I was like, I'm guessing that there were stories that you had not heard before and that were new to you. So I was wondering what your experience with that was, because you have, there's a lot of different creators that work on this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and, and because we want it to be all North America, um, we wanted to make sure that all of the nations from around North America were represented as well as we could have them. Uh, we knew that there was only you know limited space in the books. These These are supposed to be somewhat shorter anthologies um, so that they are not overwhelming for the, the YA sort of audience. Um, but I also knew that every nation has their own protocols surrounding these stories. Uh, and I'm, I'm Cree um, from Saskatchewan. So I know our ways of navigating that. But I also knew that like the writers for this would have to approach the elders and people in their community about this um, using whatever protocols uh, were fine for them uh, and then ask permission in their own way. So um, right up front when uh, Kel and Kate, uh, Kate Ashwin is the other uh, co-editor on this book. Um, and uh, we sat down and I was like, okay, well, here's how this is going to have to work. We're going to have to be real upfront with all of the writers and be like, okay, we want you to go and do whatever protocols are appropriate for your people and ask permission to tell the story and then come and pitch that story to us so that we were doing all everything in the right way. That's fascinating because it's like there's, there's sort of layers of approval and, you know, I'm not even sure approval is fully the right word. So tell me if there's a better word there. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like it was such an interesting curatorial process. So did you sort of talk to people, I guess, like how many people pitched beyond what was selected or was it close to the same group or... Yeah, well, tell me more of the process. Just dig in deeper. I want to know everything. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll jump back half a step and just say that uh, part of the reason that these stories are so, I mean, not really protected is maybe not the right term for it, but the reason that there's so many protocols around them is that they are seen as living things. So um, when I was a kid, uh, my mom actually was a storyteller that would go around to um, different schools within our, our school district and tell the stories. But in order to be a storyteller, you have to have this like, mentorship where you learn how to tell them correctly. Um, and we were already doing it sort of one step removed because neither of us speak Cree. Uh, my, my grandfather spoke Cree, but he never taught his children how to speak it. So we were already learning the stories in English. And my mom went out and she earned herself the right to tell several stories. Um, and doing that is sort of like, because they're a living thing, 
you tell them and you have to tell them the way that they were told to you. You can't change them. So before I was allowed to tell the stories, I had to go out and mentorship, uh, uh, intern under her for a while. And I would go around to the schools and just listen every time she told them, note her mannerisms, note the inflection that she spoke in. Um, and then a couple times she got me to tell one of the stories um, to her in private. And then once she put me on a spot in front of a group of kids, I was like, all right, now it's your turn to tell this story. So I, uh, I earned the right to tell a couple of the stories, which is part of how I knew about all this protocol. So they're because they're living beings that are now being translated already to English, but then now translated from English to the page and to a graphic format. That was a whole big thing. Um, so we got quite a few people pitching um, different ideas to us. And we actually, we thought that there would be people pitching the same stories and we didn't get any duplications. Um, so we, we had quite a good group to choose from. And uh, part of the problem was that we had, we were doing this during COVID. So we had a few other groups that we've been hoping to get stories from, one of which um, was, uh, I still regret that we don't have any representation from the North. Um, from like the Inu people or anyone who's sort of living up in the Arctic or, or northern communities. Uh, and that was partially just because like as COVID was happening, we, we could not get in contact with everybody. The lines of communication were really falling apart. So I, I still regret that we weren't able to get one of those stories because they have some amazing legends. Uh, the uh, legend of Sedna, the goddess of the sea, is like one of my favorites. That's so interesting how um, the stories are living things, but like they still don't change over time. So like it's passed on through generations, but there's no like additions that happen to them, like or even any attempt to like try to modernize the stories in order to get people to relate to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and there is certain ways that you can modernize stories because obviously um, Moonshot 2 was reimaginings of old um, like traditional legends. So again, we were in that one um, sort of said, we want to tell traditional stories, but then put them in a modern setting or tell them in a modern way. Uh, and it's up to you to go ahead and do that. So they'd kind of modeled for me what, what an anthology would look like where they were taking those protocols into, uh, um, into mind just before they, they asked us uh, to then go out and reinvent these things. Did you face any resistance when you uh, expressed your, your want to publish these stories? A little bit. I know I was really scared about when I um, wanted to tell a story in Moonshot um, called Katepwa. Um, Katepwa is uh, Cree for who calls. And um, my grandmother's side of the family is from a valley in Saskatchewan called Capel, uh, which is the French word for Katepwa. It basically still means who calls. And there's a legend in that valley about how there are beings that live in the lake and they'll call out to you and try to trick you and bring you out onto the lake in the water and confuse you. Um, and there was a particular legend that I was retelling um, about a man who was coming to marry a woman who lived in that area and he got led astray uh, by, these, be, by these creatures. And uh, when he finally uh, got there, his uh, beloved had passed away. So it's sort of a, a tragic story. Um, and I took that and I set it in the modern times and then had it be a commentary on the missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so I was really a little bit scared to go to my elders to talk about that one because I was like, okay, here's the reason why I want to tell this story. I think it's really important. And I think it reflects a lot of the things that are going on within modern indigenous communities. But I also know that this is a traditional story about some of the spiritual creatures of our valley uh, and that there's a whole bunch of protocols about talking about them and not naming them directly. So how do I do this? Is this even a thing I could do? 
And uh, the elders I spoke to were actually really, really pleased and, and like, this is a great idea. We like that you're doing this and here's how to navigate that. Um, and sort of gave me their, their blessings to tell that story. That's so cool. It actually reminds me of certain African like stories and African folklore where uh, the traditions are definitely passed down from generation to generation, but there are strict laws like as to not write them down because like the stories are actually about living deities and it can be seen as like a sign of disrespect. And by like speaking the stories like orally, we're actually paying homage to our ancestors and deities um, by letting the story uh, manifest within whatever circle it's being told in. And like, if you have it published, like there's like a certain like energy that goes into like those words or something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I'd heard that there was a lot of similarities between African storytelling and uh, North American storytelling. Uh, But I really love that there's ideas that uh, a lot of their tricksters are still around and still doing things. And so it's totally fine to have uh, the trickster stories like take place in the modern world because it's, it's reflective of the fact that like they're still here and they're still with us. Yeah, I automatically thought of like Elegua, who's like the trickster and like the master of like the crossroads um, with them Voodoo um, while reading Chokfi. And like, I just like thought it was like really interesting about how the trickster is just like the ultimate uh, storyteller and just like getting people to think about like the multiple paths that they go down and like looking at their lives as a whole and like how everything is interconnected. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wish Cal was here right now because I, I want to ask them if they um, had similar protocols in on the Cautionary Fables Africa edition, uh, which I wasn't involved with. Oh, wow. I haven't heard of that. Oh, that that book is so cool. There's um, one story in there called The Woman Who Married a Skull that I absolutely love. And I love the art style on the story as well. I will definitely check it out. Yeah, I was like, what? We need to get that. I didn't even know that that had been released that's amazing. I knew that this was part of a series, though. Yeah, yeah. Because it's put out with Iron Circus Comics, right? Yeah. So, yeah, their whole publishing model is the most wild thing in the world. So mm-hmm. I think it's really awesome. We're about ready to interview Spike coming up. Oh, so man. Spike's interview is going to be great. Spike is a badass, and I love chatting with her. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you had worked, if there had been a lot of crossover on the project. Did you end up talking with her a lot? Um, not a lot. She, um, the Cautionary Fable stories are kind of a new acquisition for Iron Circus. Um, before it was just being produced under Kel's sort of publishing brand, um, Kel McDonald. Uh, I think it's just KelMcDonald.com. Um, but uh, yeah, Kel and Kate Ashwin have been the, the editors on the series since the beginning. Uh, and I believe we're the fifth book in the series. They are working on another one. Um, but there's, yeah, there's Europe, uh, Africa, Asia, Oceania, and now North America. Um, so yeah, it's a whole five book series, uh, which is part of why the Kickstarter did so well for this one. When we were crowdfunding it, um, you could buy just this book or you could get the entire series. And I know a lot of people have discovered it and sort of gone like, oh, this is a great teaching resource. If you're like doing a, um, a unit on like world legends in your, your classes, like pick up all the books and then the kids can read all of the different uh, legends from around the world and kind of see how they're similar and how they're different. So yeah, I know there was quite a few uh, multi-book sets. Yeah, I imagine if you were, you know, going to kickstart it and you saw that package, it'd be hard to turn down. I always find myself being like, oh, I can get three more books for more money? Done. I'm in. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> 
I'm also really bad for forgetting what I've ordered and then it shows up and I'm like, oh yeah. I love that feeling. I'm like, oh, look, my library just grew so much. I was feeling good that day I supported that Kickstarter. <laughs> I, my bank account must have looked great. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, we talked about the early selection process, but as you started to piece the anthology together, were there common themes or were there, you know, I know we talked a little bit about wanting sort of a broad uh, representation uh, through North America. But I'm curious, you know, was there something else that was a guiding light there for you? Um, it was actually super interesting because we got a bunch of different genres submitted to us. So like one of the stories, I believe it's called Into the Darkness, is actually a horror story about a um, supernatural being from sort of the Southwest. And then we have sort of a funnier story about Chalk Fee, who's the, the rabbit trickster figure. We also have... White Horse Plains, which is a really interesting one, because that's sort of a historical moment. Uh, it tells the story of when two chiefs of different tribes uh, were presiding over a wedding between their children. Uh, and so there was this like almost Game of Thronesy element to it, where it was like, oh, is this alliance going to work out or not? What's going to happen? Tragedy strikes. Um, so yeah, I was I was really pleased to like look at the the um, stories that we got and see such a diversity of genres between them, uh, because I think a lot of people their only contact with these sort of legends before are some of the creation myths, um, if they've heard any of them at all. And I know a lot of people haven't heard basically any indigenous myths, um, but if they've heard any of them, they might've heard stuff like, uh, uh, you know, how the rabbit lost its tail or some of the coyote stories where coyotes uh, run around tricking people. Um, but uh, we actually didn't get many trickster stories at all, except for the choke fee story. So I was, I was glad to represent that one in here. But I thought we'd have to be fighting between, you know, this coyote story or that coyote story. Coyote's one of my favorites. Oh, love coyote. <laughs> it sounds like you thought there's going to be a lot more of comparing like to like, and it was a lot more eclectic than that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we we have our Decoded Pride anthology that we do every June. And it's, um, you know, we, we have them really loose in terms of theme. It's generally just... If you're queer or trans and you want to write a weird slash speculative story, send it to us. And if we like it, we'll print it. And sometimes we discover themes. But I think I also thought we'd have more like, oh, which murder mermaid story should we publish? And it just really hasn't worked out quite that way. So it's interesting how sometimes it, it just pieces itself together almost. Where it's yeah. like the stories, they want to fit together. I yeah, also yeah. was really deeply moved by how, like, the representation of, of two-spirit people, by the diverse sort of attractions shown, the the queer story of the woman in the woods. I, I really loved that. And I was just curious, you know, we don't—we know one of the big things sometimes can be, oh, queer content isn't accessible for kids, which is, like— I can't even. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious, you know, for you, was that any of the consideration? Were, you know, were you particularly excited to see those stories? Did they just naturally fit? Um, I'm just curious about the queer content in particular, if you have anything in particular about that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, we didn't ask for it, but we got it in spades. I was so excited. Um, we sort of, and we weren't even really conscious of it at first. We were just like, I love this story. I love this story. We each put together our short list of like, here's my like top 15 favorites, let's compare. And we had a bunch of them that were all on the same uh, page for that. And then we looked at them afterwards and we're like, there are a lot of queer creators who have submitted to here and several stories that are very, very um, 
diverse. Like, uh, as it was told to me is, uh, just this really, really cool story about sort of accepting yourself and being different. And the art style is absolutely amazing. So we were, we were looking at our list of creators and we were going, I think we're almost 50% people who are queer or gender non-conforming, which is really cool. We didn't go looking for that. It just happened. Uh, and I think part of that is because Iron Circus has a really good uh, reputation for being very open and accepting and, and promoting of, uh, anybody who's who's not represented uh, on the pages nearly enough. Yeah, Iron Circus rules. We'll just say it again. Yep. Another time on the... Put it on the record again. <laughs> Absolutely. Go to their website and buy all of their comics. To everyone. Yeah. <laughs> to everyone. No, no, not to Alina specifically. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was Alina, saying, you go buy to their To their now Eisner-nominated <laughs> comics. I'm so proud of my uh, co-editor, Cal, who just got nominated for an Eisner for the other anthology they did with uh, Iron Circus uh, so called cool. You Die. Oh, it's so cool. Well, you know, I wanted to just go back to, as it was told to me again, that first story yeah, in the yeah. anthology. Just, I was so moved by it. I was so delighted. I mean, every single story was just like, this is so fun. This is so beautiful. This is so scary. This is all those things at once. And I just thought it was so powerful to start with a story about the creator thinking about whether or not to create life and choosing to do it knowing how much bad would happen because there was going to be really good things too. And I was like, damn, if that is not like the message I needed to hear at this point in my life, I don't know what was. So yeah, maybe it's a YA book. Maybe it's also the book we all desperately need in our hearts and souls Mm -hmm. because it's such a, and and I really, you know, and I know this is um, true in, in many indigenous communities. I really appreciated the way the narrative pushed against thinking of male and feminine or masculine and feminine as, you know, uh, two sides of the same coin, but rather as two in- integrated pieces. And what does it mean to have those things integrated? So then, you know, good and bad, those they are a dichotomy, they're integrated. And that was just, it was such a short story. And it was yeah. just, I bawling my eyes out, just yeah, yeah. bawling. It was so beautiful and so sweet. And I really just I thought it was such a perfect place to start, too. Obviously, being like the creation story a little bit makes sense. But Mm -hmm. also to start with two spirit voices right there, front and center. Is that part of why you chose it? A little bit. Like, the story literally starts at, like, a two spirit support group. So, like, we were just like, yeah, yeah, let's set the tone on this. Let's just be like, hey, y'all, we're all welcome to read this book. Come on in. (laughs) And uh, part of the other reason that I was really glad to start off with that book is... I, I know it's not necessarily this way in every nation, but in a lot of the nations, and especially in the Cree nation, there are no gendered pronouns, which I love uh, being non-binary myself. The only distinction is animate or inanimate. So all people, and by people, I don't just mean humans. I mean like animals and um, plants, insects, uh, even water and stones are all animate beings. They're all beings with a spirit and a life of their own. Um, and inanimate things are uh, things that are dead. So an animal is an animate thing, but once its bones have been exposed and are out in the sun, that is a that is an inanimate object now. But the stone beside it is animate. And the idea that there is no distinction between male or female or or non-binary or anyone else that they were all just people, and that that same distinction goes between humans and everything else that we rely on in this big internet connected web is like right at the heart of Indigenous thinking and uh, something that I get really excited talking about and think more people need to learn about. 
There's already been like three times in this interview where I'm like, oh, I have to rethink everything. Um, <laughs> and that's one where I'm like, oh, man, yeah, 100%. <laughs> like, But now I have to reexamine my entire life <laughs> a little bit. So. <laughs> I'm bringing the decolonial theory and blowing your minds. <laughs> I know, definitely. I'm like, all right, BRB, BRB. I got to like think about this and then come back. <laughs> yeah. I, I forgot to warn you all, my mom is a decolonizing educator, and I have grown up talking about this stuff literally since I was, like, two. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. No warning needed. A beautiful <laughs> gift. I'm curious to know what your process was for selecting writers for the book. Ooh, yeah. Um, so we got, uh, we had a submission process where we, we got a form on the website. We're like, hey, submit your pitches to this. Um, pitch us your story idea. Tell us what nation they're from. And sort of how you're going to tell it. And then we sat down and picked our favorites of that. Like I said, we had our little short lists of like, well, here's my favorites. Here's Kate's favorites. Here's Cal's favorites. Most of our favorites were all the same. And then we took a look at our page count, uh, picked our top 10, contacted them, saw what we could get. Um, But we also paid attention in that list to making sure that we weren't just like overrepresenting the Great Plains or, um, you know, the Southern United States. Uh, I'd actually sort of broken it up into regions. So it was like Pacific Northwest coastal, um, Southwest California, New Mexico kind of area, um, Great Plains, um, Ontario, sort of Great Lakes, Black Swamp region, uh, Southern, Southeast, West, uh, Southeast U.S. coast and uh, Eastern provinces and then the North. Um, and like I said, we couldn't get stories from there to represent everyone in those groups. Uh, or even each of those groups, like in the case of the North. But we, I think we did a pretty good job of kind of making sure we blanketed as much of North America as we could. Very nice. So were, did you have a difficult decision, like uh, figuring out which pieces you wanted to be in the book? Like, were you bummed about like some of the uh, pieces that you had to ultimately turn down? And also adding to this question, uh, if you did have to turn down any pieces where it was like a tough decision, are you thinking about making another book? We actually didn't have to turn anybody down. Uh, We had a pretty, I I don't remember the selection process being particularly difficult at all. We had one like quick Zoom meeting and we were like, yeah, I think we're all on the same page for this one. Cool. Let's let's lock that in. Absolutely. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But we we definitely were like, there's potentially room to do more with these. Uh, It feels like we didn't quite get enough. And, And like I mentioned, um, we had some trouble with COVID happening during our, our production process. Where right, we, right, right. Um, had some stories that were potentially lined up that we then just couldn't move ahead on. And then there was a story in there that I have illustrated, and I wasn't intending to do that originally. I've kind of set myself a, a rule. So when I'm working on an on, on anthology, I won't do a story in it. I won't try and contribute because, A, I want to make, uh, make sure there's room for everybody else in there. I want to really, especially with Indigenous creators, I really want to set the spotlight for them, not me. But I also know that life happens and sometimes people have to drop out. So I was kind of setting myself in reserve as the only Indigenous creator on our co-editor team uh, to jump in and, and pick up the slack if we lost somebody. Because uh, obviously, if you get most of the way through a creation process and then you, you're like, there's two pages left that you just need to finish up. Can we finish them, please? And then they'll be in the book. I could jump in on that and finish them up. Um, we ran into a, a situation where uh, we'd lined up um, the amazing, amazing artist, Jeffrey uh, Vereggi, um, who's done a lot of covers for Marvel. He's got this amazing Pacific Northwest style. Uh, some of you have probably seen his Batman piece. It's amazing. 
But he got sick during this process. He was diagnosed with lupus and he was actually in a coma for quite some time. uh, And I believe is still recovering from that right now. So we didn't have a cover and he had submitted a story that he'd written, but he hadn't even started the sketches on it before he fell ill. So we lost touch with him for a while, obviously, like his family had much bigger things to do than respond to our emails. Um, but we really, really, really liked that story and we wanted it in the book and we didn't have anything else from the Pacific Northwest represented in there. So with only like a couple weeks left to go to print, I was like, how about I jump in there and draw it? And I'd been looking for um, another Pacific Northwest style artist to try and take over that story instead because I thought it was really important to have the Pacific Northwest style represented in that particular story, which is about Octopus Woman, who was like a big figure uh, up here on the on the West Coast. Uh, and I've been living up here long enough to be like, yeah, I, I'm i not from here. I'm really not from here. The culture is very different. I would like somebody from here to step in and take that one. But the timeline was so short and I had to like pull some all-nighters just to get it done as it was. So we just ran out of time on that one. And I had to make the call on that of going, okay, I am not a Pacific Northwest artist and I feel uncomfortable drawing in that style, but I also know that this story needs it. I'm going to draw in my style, but there's a couple figures and panels that I have in mind that I want to have the West Coast style in as much as I can. Uh, Drew it, ran it by a couple friends just to make sure I wasn't doing anything wrong or messing it up or doing anything that was going to get me in trouble. Uh, And that I was honoring the story and the work and the culture as much as I could be and then got it off the print. Uh, So I'm, I'm really glad that that story's in there. Yeah, the glamorous life of an editor, right? Yeah. Wow, that is that's a. I'm so glad you told us that because I was going to ask about that story specifically, obviously because of your your artwork on it. That story is wild. I could have never ever guessed that was what unfolded. It seems yeah. so beautifully. I can't imagine it in a different art. I'm sure you can because you spent some time doing it. <laughs> um, but it's really a beautiful story, and I was very touched by it. I I really liked it. You know, you said you wanted to honor that style. It also sounds like maybe you weren't able to be in conversation with the writer. No. So how did, like, how did you know what to do? <laughs> like, what interpretation did you feel like you had license to take? Were there just really good descriptions? Like, how did you manage that? As an artist, I would love to know. That was, I, we were flying by the seat of our pants on that one. Because literally, we had, um, the only confirmation that we got from him was uh, um, through his wife, I don't even think he was really conscious at that point, but his wife said, yes, I found the files and I know that he really wanted that story to be in there. So please go ahead with it. Cause we'd been asking, we'd heard the news um, that he had, he was had fallen ill and we were like, Oh no, we really want to move ahead with the story, especially because like, we know that he poured his heart into it and we want him to be featured in this book, but he definitely can't be involved at this point. So what do we do? Um, and so, yeah, we just got the, the sort of go ahead from his partner and then we were like, cool, we're not going to bug him with this because he can't talk to us right now. He's He's got more important things to do. Um, yeah. And like I said, there was like T minus two weeks, maybe even less than that to get this thing to the printer. Uh, so uh, we were like, okay, I'm just going to draw this as fast as I can and run it by some friends who uh, know the culture out here better than I do and hope it's good enough. Well, you could never tell that it was one of those situations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad. <laughs> Sometimes when you're under the wire, that's whenever I'll look back on something that I like had to complete so fast all of a sudden. And then I'm like, that was pretty good, actually. (laughs) I get kind of proud of myself because it's it's almost the circumstances makes you be like, I appreciate what I did there. 
I was wondering uh, if you'd like to talk about the cover because I thought the the cover is ridiculously beautiful and I would just like to hear about it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, the cover originally was supposed to be Jeffrey as well. Um, so about the same time, uh, we actually started on the cover before I started on the story. We were still hoping that we could find another artist for the story. But uh, I knew that uh, once once we weren't doing the cover, I was like, well, I or once he wasn't able to do the cover, I was like, I actually was hoping um, that we were because it's North America. There is a, a saying that North America is Turtle Island, and there is this uh, legend of um, Sky Woman who falls from the, or Star Woman who falls from the sky, lands on the back of a giant turtle, um, and the whole world is nothing but ocean uh, and this turtle, and she sends a bunch of animals down under the water um, looking for land. Um, and eventually in the story that I know, it's Muskrat who goes down and, and dies diving so deeply beneath the waves, but then floats back up to the surface, holding the smallest bit of dirt in his claws. And she takes that and spreads it over the turtle's back. And from that, the land is born, um, which is why on the cover turtle inside his shell has plants and trees, uh, to represent sort of what is to come. But uh, I really quickly got the idea of like, well, that's the best way to represent all of North America. This is Turtle Island. This is the back of the turtle. So having that story on our cover would be amazing. Um, and then each of the Cautionary Fables books has a different color scheme. Green, yellow, and red were taken. Uh, but blue hadn't been taken yet. And blue is my favorite color. Uh, this is all audio. So you can't see my like vibrantly blue hair. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I quite like that. So I was like, well, I'm calling blue. Uh, and it's the ocean, so that works great. The press photos will be great because you can hold the book <laughs> next to, obviously, your hair. Um, I will match. You're going to match. I loved the stars that are in the clothing. I thought that that was really cool. Aren't there? Did I put stars in the clothing? Yes, there are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really pretty. It's That's really pretty. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of I didn't I think actually I didn't notice it at first because there's a lot of things to focus on on the cover. So I think I was looking through and just being kind of like, oh, man, this is awesome for this reason and this reason. Obviously, this turtle is amazing. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I think I also put stars around her collar. They're the little diamond shapes uh, are more stars because I was just like, let's double down on this theme. I want to be real obvious who this is. I'm interested to know about your time uh, living in different countries and how that inspired you in your career to illustrating and web designing and publishing and just like loving all things nerdy. Like, what did you take in from like, I'm, actually, I'm really curious. Were you able to just like mold into like other communities of nerds, like in different countries? Because I think I just want to have like an international like meetup of all nerds from all different backgrounds. Oh man, that would be super cool. I didn't. Um, the, uh, the main big trip I did was, um, I mentioned that I, I went to animation school and then took a year off to travel. And I did that because I, I had applied for a internship program, um, where they were sending indigenous youth around the world to go and like experience other cultures. So I got paired up with another um, Indigenous woman who was a little bit older than me. I was the youngest one accepted into the program. I was like 17 at the time, uh, and she was in her 20s. So she, she, we were both going to go, and she was kind of like, look after me. Um, but we got sent to Fiji, and we lived in this like little rural community and then community, commuted into um, Suva every day to go work uh, at an NGO doing like environmental work. So that was like already 
super mind-blowingly cool. Um, but because I was so young and so nerdy, I was so shy, and I didn't really make a lot of friends out of the office, and I super regret not going out and finding, like, the cool Fijian nerds I know are out there. Um, but yeah, so I, I didn't really meet any cool nerds while I was in Fiji. Uh, showed up to all my Fiji friends. Um, but while I was already halfway around the world, I'd saved up a little bit of money. And I was like, my grandma is currently teaching English in China. Uh, she had retired and she's a badass. So she was like, I have a bunch of money saved up and I don't want to be here anymore. So let's go somewhere else. So she went to China, decided to teach English. Uh, I was like, well, it's cheap to buy a flight from here to China. So let's go there and just hang out with her for a while. Uh, and I met some really cool nerdy friends there uh, who were nerds in different ways. Um, they were super, super, super into like video games. And I'd never really done the video game nerd thing. Like I played platforms and stuff, but these were like, we have like, this is like the early days of MMOs. And they were like, yeah, we got guilds and we got like rankings. And we're like super into this. I was like, cool. I'm really bad at this game. <laughs> if I play your character, it will die a lot. <laughs> uh, but that was still like a nice call for a cross point. Mm hmm. And then, yeah, and then after that, I, I came back to Canada and just hung out here for a bit, uh, LARPing and drawing comics. I was curious about if when you're in different places, do you write differently? Because I'll notice that about myself sometimes where whenever I'm, you know, if I'm sure we all travel at least a little bit. And whenever I'm in one place, I'll be like, you know kind of retrospective, like kind of thinking back on my life or something. And then if I go somewhere else, I'm like, let's write something funny or, you know, something along those lines. A little bit. Yeah. I, uh, actually, I, I don't know if I, it was the writing that changed, but definitely my reading habits changed. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got to go on a trip with my partner. Um, he is Canadian, but like of Norwegian descent. And, uh, his dad had done a bunch of research on where the family was from. And, um, found the farm that the family had lost uh, in a like bad business venture that made them then move to Canada and try to start over. So my partner was like, I really want to go and like find, find my ancestors. And I'm like, that sounds rad. That must be weird being far away from them because like I'm, I'm Canadian <laughs> indigenous. So they're here. I talked to them. Uh, so we flew to Norway and I was being there was like the most alien thing to me. It was even stranger to me than being in Fiji or China, which kind of felt like more familiar, more Canada-like, even though Fiji is like as un-Canada as you can get. There was just something really wild about being so far up in the north. Uh, we went up all the way up to Tromsø, which is like north, north, north. And uh, we managed to find like the, the old farm that his family had come from and like the church that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old with all of the family members, all of his ancestors buried there. And that was just like a really powerful experience. Uh, and so I, I didn't write anything while I was there, but I suddenly started reading like all of these like Norse epics and I wanted that like that kind of story when I was there. Now I just want to travel there and read Heathen again. Yeah. Just be immersed in lesbian Norsedom. That's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> awesome. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, Newsmakers, I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Well, well, hello there. I didn't see you come in. Welcome to the episode. This is S.E. Flinor, and I'd like to ask a favor of you today. Can you do me a favor? Are you open to a favor? Does I mean, it feel weird for me to ask you for a favor? I have a curfew. I have to be back in um, <laughs> by 7 p.m., but right now it's about a little bit afternoon, so I think I've got some time. <laughs> Why do you have a curfew? <laughs> Good question. I guess I never really... Uh, questioned it it's the cats the cats gave you a curfew yeah like, pretty much better have your bitch ass back here by 7 p.m to feed me also being a grandma like i am a hundred percent grandma uh sleeping schedule so i'm like mm, 8 p.m pretty late seems like time for a nap slash bedtime anyway the point is <laughs> okay if you're gonna do me the favor whether or not you have a curfew that favor is can you go rate and review of the pod give us five stars you could just say oh man bitches are cool that's great we love that you could say oh man i've never loved harley quinn more i'd be surprised but i'd be okay with it you could go in and say wow these interviews they blow my mind or whatever you want to say and now listen, hey, I know not every platform allows you to rate and review. For instance, I don't think Schmadashmai does, but you know what does? Schmapple. Schmadschmacher. <laughs> so go over there. I'm not giving them free ads. Go over there, rate and review. And guess what? You don't even have to listen to us on those apps to rate and review us there. Don't tell anyone I told you or tell everyone. Let's game the system, y'all. So rate and review us. Five stars. I was going to say five stars for each bitch, <laughs> but there's so many of us. That'd be like a, that'd be like a billion stars. So give us a billion stars on your favorite podcast platform or schmodschmacher or schmapple. <laughs> schmapple while you're drinking a snapple. 
know, we got to talk about Wear Geeks because as you started to say at the beginning of the episode, that was like 15 years of your life. Um, I, I, and I don't know if there are plans to continue it. So obviously that'll be part of the question. But I heard you say you started Wear Geeks as almost like an accountability project to help you keep creating comics. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Just to keep me drawing even. And like, I didn't think about it at the time, but it was also teaching me how to write. So for years I was always like, oh, I'm an artist. I'm not really a writer. And then I'm like, wait, you've been writing a thing for like eight years. You can start calling yeah. yourself a writer now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that that that's allowed. Um, yeah, so I, I really like it. It was... Totally different from Women in the Woods for many obvious reasons. But I, I thought it was interesting. You also mentioned you didn't explore any of your indigeneity through it. But you did really dig in on your your geekiness and geek culture and LARPing and video games. I read, like, every cast member's bio, and I was like, yep, that's a very specific flavor of nerd. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. like, there's so much love for geeks here and for... Again, D and D, LARPing, vampires, witches. There's just, it's just, it just oozes that love. And I just, want, I want to know more about why was that where you started? What, what was this love story for for geeks? And then talk to me about the wear geek concept because I am sold. I love it, and I just, you know, want to hear where that came from. Okay, cool. Um, so the whole concept behind wear geeks was. Uh, after I was done traveling around and I came back and I was like going, well, the whole animation thing didn't work out. What am I going to do with my life now? Uh, I ran into one of my friends from animation school and we started playing tabletop games again together. And, uh, I got her involved in LARPing because I'd sort of fallen into LARPing at that point too. And I was like, you got to come try this out. It's amazing. I know that you're kind of gothy and like, there's this thing where once a month we can go and actually pretend to be vampires. It's great. And she's like, sold. Love it. Let's do this. Uh, so I brought her into the game that I was playing, but, uh, we were sort of like, we'd see each other during the day in like a sort of more professional corporate outfits. And then at night we would show up like dressed like vampires or during our tabletop games dressed like nerds. Uh, and we joked that we were wear geeks cause we were like only nerds by night. Um, so that was the whole idea that like sat in the back of my brain. I was like, I really need to do something about this. It's such a great concept. I want to play around with that. So that, that was the whole idea behind my comic. Uh, which originally wasn't going to go for 15 years. I was like, I will do this for like a few years. And (laughs) yeah, right. I was like, I'll just dive down into this idea. I'll tell a couple funny stories about these people who are like nerds by night. Uh, Although in my, my book, they actually like turn into big, like shadow creatures uh, when they're geeking out. Uh, And that's a whole storyline. But yeah, that I did it like in my spare time to start out with while I was still working corporate jobs as a graphic designer for like big firms and then I was working on a magazine at one point and we all got laid off because magazines are going under left, right and center. Um, and that I think at that point I'd been doing it for about eight years and I'd started going to comic conventions and trying to sell uh, my, my print collections and some of the shirts I'd made. And I was getting to the point where I was like, I can do this full time, I think, if I really push. Uh, so that's where I made the, the transition to go in full time on Wear Geek. Uh, and at that point I was committed and I like I really fallen in love with the characters that I was writing about who were very, 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 very loosely based on some of the people that I met, but more sort of based on the archetypes of nerds that I'd met through nerddom, through like LARPing and conventions and all of that great stuff. So I was just like, well, I got more stories to tell these characters. Let's keep going and just see where this ends up. And 15 years later, I'm finally to a point where I have an ending in sight, want to end it, but COVID happened and (laughs) that was a whole year. 
So I lost my momentum on that at the same point as I also lost my uh, income stream of conventions. So I've had to set that ending aside. The final chapter is like partially written, but I've had no time to work on it because I am uh, expanding all the freelancing stuff. Hence the multiple anthologies that I've got going on right now. Yeah. Are, are, do you think you'll be going to any conventions this year? I'm going to one this weekend. Oh my goodness. Okay. So getting back in it. Yeah, we got uh, Vancouver Comics Arts Festival on uh, this very weekend uh, in Vancouver. Uh, it's going to be it'll be fun. Amazing. What are you most looking forward to with getting back to conventions? Oh, God, just seeing everybody again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's how um, Cal and I met. That's how Spike and I met. We were just all doing the same sort of thing. We all would get put into the like web comics area of the cons that we exhibited at. And then afterwards, we do this thing where you like, stumble out in a haze and you're like oh i'm hungry and i've talked to people all day we need to eat where are we going uh and then one of us would like be like there's a place nearby let's go and eat there (laughs) oh i love that yeah it's beautiful well i you know where geeks is so fun i mean i i honestly i love that you were like you know there's probably a couple years of stories here and then you turn around one day and it's been 15 years like that's you're a whole new person since you started Wear Geeks. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like twice over, your cells have like reset themselves. Totally. Like, is there, what do you think is the big thing you've learned through through Wear Geeks? Oh God, everything. Like literally everything. <laughs> uh, kind of relatable. It's been 15 years. It would be hard 15 to years. choose one thing. <laughs> I learned I was a writer. I learned how to do backgrounds and layouts, which is something that I was really sucked at back when I was at animation school. I learned how to manage a business and order merch. And I learned how to ship stuff on pallets across the country. (laughs) I I can do logistics now, which is weird. I learned how to do my own taxes, which sucks because I have to do it in two different countries. So I learned it real good because I have to do it twice. Uh, But yeah, like literally I learned everything. Uh, And part of that I learned by like going to these conventions and chatting with people who are doing the same things and being like, how do you do your taxes or who do you ship through or where do you get your merch from? Oh, really, it really was about the comics community. I love that. Yeah, totally. That's so inspiring that you learned all of those like skills and it's very like DIY oriented, which I think is really awesome. And I'm really interested to know, like, um, as far as like community goes, have you always felt that by creating like within your community that you also present an opportunity for more diverse narratives to come out of it? And especially if it's like a more welcoming community of everyone? Yeah, totally. I know that like last VanCalf that happened before um, the whole COVID thing and we were shut down for several years, we I was on a really cool panel uh, run by Cool Pauls and Sadegonis Esquival. I, I'm probably butchering his last name. But uh, there was a this like panel at Van Calf that was talking about Indigenous representation in comics. And it was uh, four of us Indigenous creators all together, which I'd never been in a room with that many Indigenous creators before who were all in comics. I was just like, this is rad. I love this. Uh, but we all had really similar stories of like growing up, the only places we saw indigenous representation on tv or in media was really weird it was like the weird space natives in star trek who showed up and like kidnapped wesley crusher and then they would like wander out into the universe in a weird mystical way or like some of the um 
really, really bad representation in comics, like Black Hawk and oh, my mind has gone completely blank of all of the indigenous uh, uh, cape characters. But uh, some of them were not great. Most of them were not great. And we all were like, yeah, yeah. But like, even if they weren't great, it was literally the only thing that we saw ourselves in, in, in the pages. So we were still like, yeah, this is cheesy and real not how we are. But like, we're still like big fans. Uh, and how we were like, so the next thing we need that we owe to the next generations is that they get to see themselves in comics. That they can pick up a book and be like, yeah, actually, that is how Cree people are. And I, I feel like really represented here and really loved. Um, and I, that attitude is really spreading across the whole nerd world. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of a really cool tabletop role-playing system uh, called Coyote and Crow, but it is this amazing, amazing book um, that is just like a world like no other that is all Indigenous people being rad in a really cool fantasy, high-tech setting. And I actually bought a couple extra copies that I'm going to take to my reserve and leave there in the library. So hopefully the kids on my reserve can like see themselves and role-play in a system that really supports them. That sounds so awesome. It happens for all like um, marginalized folks, like within comics, like how these like stereotypes just seem to follow us. And also there's just like this like hesitancy to actually employ writers who are actually well-versed in their own culture and everything else that could provide some like measure of authenticity to whatever publication they actually pull out. And I feel like, the work still hasn't been done, even though there have been like some like, quote unquote, attempts at diversity. Um, but like there are still so many creators that are being overlooked and a lot of their stories are not given like the love that they deserve. So kudos to you for holding the torch, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I feel really honored to sort of be able to have the contacts from doing um, cons over the years to now be able to turn around and go like, cool, I got my start doing anthologies. I now want every other Indigenous person who wants to do comics to have the same opportunity. So how can I make that happen? And uh, feel super honored to know Spike and be like, hey, here's a thing that I would like to do. Would you be cool with that? And she's like, yeah, I'm on board. That sounds great. Because she gets, she gets that. She gets how important it is to see yourself represented like that. So uh we're actually working on another project uh, coming up uh, 2024 uh, called Indigenerds, which I will be the editor on, uh, sole editor on this one. And it is going to be like stories of modern indigenous life. So indigenous people interacting with the modern world, but especially with technology and pop culture. So this is going to be like, do you and your family cosplay? Tell us that story or tell us a story about... Um, using uh apps to to like coordinate rides on the powwow trail that is so rad i'm like sold by the title alone <laughs> that is such a great title <laughs> thank you <laughs> ah, yes and i hope that when you launch the book like just please like make merch because i'm pretty sure a lot of kids will be like really into that so that's oh, awesome yeah, yeah. And you'll have to come back to the podcast, obviously. I guess. You're oh, in now. Obviously. You're in the group. We're never going to let you go. You're our friend now. I'm going to tell you now, you messed up by coming on this podcast because once you do, you're in. <laughs> and I am living <laughs> testament to that. Monica <laughs> used to be a guest and then she was a very frequent guest. And then we were like, hey, host this. <laughs> and then 15 years later. <laughs> yeah. 
it was like, oh, do you want to um, do like a Patreon special with us? And then it was, oh, would you like to do two or three more of those and also do a regular episode? And then eventually I'm living upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I've been kidnapped. <laughs> I hold it true. <laughs> oh, my. Dear listeners, Monica has not actually been kidnapped. <laughs> I just want to be very clear about that. The optics on that would be real bad. Like, that is not good stuff. Yes. Monica is here of her own free <laughs> Of my own volition. Yes. Yes. Help it doesn't me. help that I'm saying it. Help. <laughs> that makes it sound more. <laughs> Sorry, oh, Kate. Dear. You can cut out the my pleas for help. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is my life. <laughs> Okay, I would love to hear a little bit about Life Finds a Way, which, A, when at the beginning you were like, I like dinosaurs. And I was like, I think you might. Yeah, (laughs) maybe. That title is like, yeah, straight out of Jurassic Park. Um, Maybe also other places. So tell me a little bit about what that process was like and, yeah, anything you learned or any big takeaways or also, I don't know, where people can find it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'll start with that one. People can find it at cloudscapecomics.com. Um, like I said, that's the um, local comics um, collective that are uh, set up here in Vancouver. So it's a bunch of indie creators all over the greater Vancouver area, all get together to support each other and make rad books together. Uh, big shout out to them. They're awesome. But uh, life finds a way happen when my friend Dan Enktel, who's my co-editor on that one, came to me and was like, I am a writer. I do not do comics. Uh, but I would like to make a comics anthology and don't know how to make that happen. Here's the pitch. Hopeful post-apocalypse. Because we've been having a bunch of conversations about how this is back when like zombie everything was super popular. Like Walking Dead was like at its height. And all of the post-apocalypses were this like real hyper-masculine survival-oriented every man for himself kind of thing. And we're like, that's not how humans are. We make communities and friends and we like to be kind to each other. And I think that the more pressure that is put on us from the outside, the more we'll actually come together. Uh, And I think that we could really use some of that hope right now. (laughs) Pre pre 2020, Alina didn't know what they were going to face. But uh, but yeah, so it like became weirdly prescient (laughs) because the book actually launched just as COVID was ramping up to the point at which uh, Dan and I were sitting down and being like, I don't think we should have a launch party for this because I think we aren't going to be able to do gatherings soon. Maybe let's hold off. So uh, that that book has never had a launch and it's been out for two years because we just can't be in public anymore right now. Um, but but also it became this weirdly like, hey, so we have this book about like hopeful stories in a, in a post-apocalyptic setting that seems real topical right now. And it's all stories of like survival and coming together and building communities. Um, and we didn't want stories about like the apocalypse happening. We wanted the apocalypse, the apocalypse has happened. People are still around. We're picking up the pieces and rebuilding. What does that look like? I love that. One of my favorite stories we ever published with uh, Decoded was about a, a very hopeful post-apocalyptic story. And to me, I'm like, those are so 
unique to pair like the true resilience of humanity, the true. And, you know, I say one, but there's actually been a handful that we've published with Dakota and love them all. Um, but it, there's just something really special about taking something so terrible and, and saying like, no, we're still here because I don't remember who said this, but like the world is ending all the time, right? Like we're living through these apocalypses, uh, I guess maybe is the plural, all the time, right? Like terrible things are happening and yet we are able to build communities of care. We're able to love each other. We're able to build alternative economies. Like, wow, humans are amazing. So I was really excited to learn about Life Finds a Way. And I think I saw it was like 20 stories. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to eat that up. I'm going to go buy it right now. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, here's kind of a, a, a cheat is uh, Indigenous people are super into uh, post-apocalypse stories because we've lived through several apocalypses. There was There was a literal genocide on this continent uh, that we've survived and carried on and kept our culture strong and resilient. So, like, that really resonates for Indigenous folks. Um, and that was part of the reason why when Dan pitched it to me, I was like, I am in. I love I love dystopias, but I also think love thinking about how to fix dystopias and how to carry on in, like, a really strong way. Very different experience, but whenever I watched The Walking Dead, <laughs> I also was incredibly infuriated the whole time and just being like, why do they always, it's always just cop stuff. It's always just the cop in charge. And it just bummed me out so much. It's because they're all being written by white guys. <laughs> it's all, it's written by cops. <laughs> yep, it's a problem. Yeah, it was a problem. It was a recurring problem during my Walking Dead watch, for sure. Where I was just like, this system doesn't work. No wonder you were focusing on people and they're just like, oh, no, we've been attacked again. And now half of us are dead. And you're just like, yeah, because you fight with everybody who you come across. Mm -hmm. And the solution is always violence. And you're like, they're no. like, you know what? I think it's just going to be me and this guy. We're going to fight it out. <laughs> <And you're> just <laughs> like, all right. I thought about that too, because I was always like, I wonder what zombies would be happy doing other than eating people. <laughs> like, I think about that, like where I'm just like, is there a way, has anybody tried to mediate with the zombie? <laughs> right. They're not very smart. You can outthink them. <laughs> That's yeah. why I love the wild so much. I feel like Vita right. and and, and uh, Emily, I believe, were were playing with that, and it was like, ah, oh, they're such beautiful zombies too. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of fertile ground there for people to still kick around in. I think the best of zombies is yet to come. That's what I'll say. I agree. I'm not sure why I needed to say that, but <laughs> no, I mean it's real though because I think a lot of people are like zombies are over, and I'm like we haven't even told anything good yet. <laughs> like, or I mean there is some good stuff. <laughs> you know that reminds me. Stephanie Williams always talks about this when she's on the pod. People will be like, superheroes are over. It's been done. And she's like, why do you all always do this right when black people, women, indigenous people and queers mm -hmm. get to write But them? that's what they what mean. That? That's mm -hmm. what they mean. It's over for them apparently, even though we already know that that's not the case. They're just being little <laughs> bitches about it. <laughs> not the good kind of bitches. Not the good kind of bitches. <laughs> just like, just petulant toddlers and it's so annoying. It's so annoying. I just, yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
I was wondering, you have a bunch of, yeah, as we were saying, you have so many projects that are in the works. Do you have something in mind that you haven't gotten to try? Because it seems like you've really been, you've done a lot of different creative things, right? Mm -hmm. So is there something that's just been kind of at the back of your mind, kind of just compelling you and being like, oh, I can't wait until I have time to work on that without giving anything away. I don't want to ask you to like give away anything. Oh, that's fine. is there something that is soon to come? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing I want to try my hand at that I haven't done yet is writing a novel, and I'm I am twenty thousand words into one. Uh, it's going to be a YA cyberpunk novel. So I I was like, hey, I'm a, I could write. I'm a, I guess I'm a writer. Let's try this out. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if I can finish that off, and then find somebody to pick it up. If they don't, I will fight them in these streets. All of them. You give me the list of people who reject your book. And I will, you're like, violence doesn't solve anything. I'm like, but it will in this case. Excellent. It was actually, this is actually one of the rules in my cyberpunk novel is like so many cyberpunk novels have a, the same problem that so many of the zombie stories do that like the only solution is violence. And it's usually like one lone protagonist against the world. Uh, and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not how any of this works. It's all collective mm-hmm. action. And you got to be on your own. So um, the protagonist in this story actually has a set of rules. And one of the rules is you cannot do violence by your own hand. So I think that puts a very different spin on the cyberpunk genre. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm ready to read it right now. Awesome. <laughs> just send it over when you finish cool. it. <laughs> send it over. Send it over. I was thinking about that, too, because that really is kind of how it goes with writing books. I I can't speak for everybody in the room right now, but I will say that whenever it was like, oh, maybe you should write a book. And I was like, oh, (laughs) like maybe I should. It was the very very first time it came to me. And then you're just like, yeah, I wrote like a bunch of words for this. For me, I made it to a place where I was like, oh, none of this works. I'm just going to have to rewrite the whole thing. (laughs) I didn't have a lot of intentionality behind it. So when people are just like, oh, you should plan out your book. Hey, it turns out that that is actually really good information. (laughs) Um, Just have an idea where you're going. I was just like, I want this to happen, this to happen, and this to happen. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, they have to be connected. Those events have to be connected I think I did it backwards because I'm so used to planning meticulously for comics because it's like such a time consuming project that like, I was like, I want to write a novel. Here's the entire outline in (laughs) in like sub point forms. uh, And that's, that's my writing. And then I've sat there and I was like, oh, I actually have to put words into this. I should, I should prose this now. (laughs) It's not like doing comic script where I would then take the point form and just put dialogue on it. I need to like describe things. Oh, writing, it's hard. <laughs> it makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. Is there, I feel like everybody in this room is working on a book. So I think yeah, this is it's, particularly mm-hmm. poignant. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. we all stare off into the middle distance. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was legitimately looking at a jay bird outside of my window going, you know what? What are, what even is a book? What does it mean to book? So yes, I identify very much with what everyone just said. What does it mean to book? (laughs) Oh my God. So 
uh, now we call it a book just because it has two covers and a bunch of pages in between. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll be talking to my therapist oh, about my this later next it. week. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. Well, I did have one question, but I think it's totally off like grid, but like I stumbled in when you and Sarah were talking and y'all were talking about anime. And I'm a former weeb, you know, like when I was a teenager, I was like very much like, like, wow, just out there. And I'm just curious to know, uh, what are some of your favorite anime shows? Because I did hear Gundam drop. And then all I could think about was like Gundam Wing and like thinking about like Duo and Death Scythe Hell Custom. And I used to do builds like that and stuff like, but I don't have the time to do that anymore. But um, I used to watch, like, Tenchi Muyo, and I was really into, like, Magical Girl series and reading manga. And I think that horror manga is, like, some of the best, like, comics that are out there. So I just want to know, like, second. What, what, what kind of wrecks you got? Did you say second? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really like horror manga. Sarah turned me on to it. And I'm yeah. like, oh, it's so scary. I love it's it. So it's so scary. scary. And it's so sometimes good. just so weirdly, like, funny disgusting. And oh, yeah. I re- that's like a feeling I enjoy very much. Uh, I just finished Ramina, which was a gift. Mm-hmm. And from who? <laughs> from my favorite Aries, Sarah Century. Um, and it is like I hear she's mm-hmm. got good taste. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's probably one of my favorite uh mangas that I've read this year. So I just want to know if you want to drop some recs on us, you know, drop some knowledge, you know, about what anime, what manga we should be reading, what inspires you. I know this is a very big, big question. That's a big question. I I mean, I could, I could, I'm old school. So like, I really got into manga, like I said, because it was like an alternative to the Cape books. There was a little bookseller down the street from my house that I could go to. Uh, and they had a tiny manga shelf and I wandered across, ran my half and like got super, super into it. And there's like a million of them. Uh, and then I started reading some of Rumiko Takahashi's other stuff. So I got like really into Inuyasha created like an Inuyasha OC that I role-played on a forum, did lots of fan art. I also, into Sailor Moon back in the day, it was like my first experience with anime at all, was me and my teen friends watching it on like VHS dubs that we got in the mail, which tells mm-hmm. you how old I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah. I could actually draw fan art of Sailor Moon and trade it with some of my classmates for snacks. Yo, so that was like, that's such a racket. Awesome. Congrats. So good. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you can draw. Can you draw me Sailor Jupiter? And I'm like, yeah. Amazing. Awesome. I'd do that for free. I also love Sailor Moon. So oh, much. yeah. Yes. I used to get up at like 530 in the morning just to catch Sailor Moon on. I think it was on a television station called UPN. When I was growing up, I, I don't think UPN exists anymore. But yeah, I would get up early in the morning just to watch Sailor Moon. Nice. Um, because it was such an important part of my childhood. And it actually, like, opened the gates for me to become, like, a really big anime fan. For so many people, I think, right? There was a time when they were showing it on Cartoon Network, and that was whenever I was watching it. Was that before this, I'm guessing? Because I feel like I must have been, I don't know, like, 10 or 12 or something no, whenever that was happening. I think they were, because, I mean, there was Toonami, which was, yep. like, the platform where they showed, like, a lot of anime. And that's how I got into Dragon Ball Z and Gundam yep. Wing yeah. and, like, Tenchi Muyo and, like, all that stuff. So it was the gateway drug for sure. 
I also realized I was very gay with Sailor Moon. <laughs> I, have to, I was going to say, Sailor Moon might be like the earliest thing I can remember that was actually like, is this queer? Question marks? <laughs> oh, and it Oh, is, they tried right? super yeah. hard to straight wash that shit. It was yes. so funny. It's so funny to watch it though because <laughs> it's, she's all like gazing dreamily into Uranus's eyes and then it's just like yeah my cousin and everybody's like what oh yeah totally and you're watching it like that's more weird what are you doing like super weird like this is now they still look like they're having sex like they still look like Mm -hmm. these two are super into each other um you didn't make it not look like that. <laughs> you, made it just, you just made it weirder because now they're cousins. And I'm just like, I don't think it's chill to be like that with your cousin. Uh, yeah, that was the wrong message to send to children. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, which character? Because I loved Sailor Neptune because she's so sad girl with a violin and is all just like across the room, like looking at her crush being like, you... And then just like walking away. And I'm just like, that's me. Whenever I was like 12, I was just like, that's my favorite character. Yes. In the world. I was really into Sailor Jupiter. Yeah, I was really into Sailor Jupiter. I I, I identified with Sailor Mercury, but like had a crush on Sailor Jupiter. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, Sailor Mercury. Yeah. She was definitely the Gemini of the group, but like not like... <laughs> I feel like she was like a mixture. Am I really doing the astrology signs of Sailor Moon characters right now? (laughs) Yeah, Sailor Mercury, like she always had like her wit and like, you know, whatever. But I also really like Chibi Moon. She was my favorite too. But also Luna and Artemis, like, uh, yeah, good times, good times. I was hoping somebody would say that they were the tuxedo mask. (laughs) Oh, God, yes. I wish I could be Tuxedo Mask. I'm such a Neptune. And then I'm just like, Tuxedo Mask. He just gets to show up and leave. <laughs> I know, right? And like the coolest way to like, all right, no explanation. I'm just going to throw a rose and disappear. I'm going to claim that for myself now. Be like indigenous <laughs> yeah. auntie be like, show up, be like, sort out your shit and then just leave. <laughs> <laughs> the dream. Pop off. That disappear. <laughs> Well, I loved this, but was there any other recommendations that you had off of the top of your head? I can't think of anything but Sailor Moon now. <laughs> I know. That's what I, we're going to, this is the podcast now. <laughs> the Sailor Moon podcast. Uh, we are a, yeah, Sailor Moon podcast now. And join us next week when our same guests will be exactly what they are this week. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so... You have mentioned a couple of the projects that you have coming up, but I would love for you to plug absolutely anything else that you can plug here at the top of the hour. (laughs) Um, I have plugged Coyote and Crow already. Check them out. They're amazing. Uh, Check out Red Planet Comics, uh, all the best indigenous comics. They are rad. Um, A Howl is coming out soon. And I think I mentioned that briefly. I'm in it, but also it is like the biggest collection of indigenous artists and writers that I've ever seen. There's like 50 of us. Uh, it's going to be a tome. I've seen the, the PDF copy and it's all amazing. All of the stories are all about werewolves. Uh, I'm also a big werewolf nerd. Um, so like having like 50 stories about werewolves and all indigenous, I love it. It's candy to me. Uh, check that out. Like those are my shout outs. Red Planet Comics in Albuquerque, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. They host the Indigenous Comic Con, which I want to go to one of these years. 
It's so cool. Yeah, I think that's such a cool idea. I missed it and I don't remember what the deal was. It was basically I was going to go with one of my friends and then just things fell through or something. Mm -hmm. So I also would love to at least just go and be able to support because there's always I saw that lineup, you know, (laughs) I was just like, I want to go drop like $200. Yeah, for sure. People should definitely check out all of these things. Mm -hmm. So listeners, if there's any part where you missed out, you didn't hear what was said, you know, (laughs) like you were, you got up, you went to get a snack, you came back and you were like, oh, didn't they just say something? I was supposed to, oh man, I didn't write that down. I didn't have a pin on me. This happens to me all of the time. And guess what? Nothing. I forget about it immediately. You don't have to forget about it. We have show notes. (laughs) I encourage you to check out the show notes because we're going to have all kinds of information, links. You can click on everything. You can check those out by hitting the three dots somewhere around the title of the show or a picture of someone's face. Just hit a bunch of three dots and then see what happens. Alina, you have been delightful. You have made us laugh. Uh, This beautiful anthology brought me to tears several times. I was texting Sarah this morning like, I'm just crying a lot because it's so beautiful. And we are just so excited to have you here to talk about uh, Women in the Woods and all of your other great work. I'm going to go read all of Where Geeks. I haven't quite made it through. I think I'm only through like half of chapter one. So I'm looking forward to learning more about those nerds and what I'm sorry, those geeks and what they're up to. Because they're delightful. I was going to say, a full archive dive is is an undertaking. I'm sorry. It's going to take a while. You know, (laughs) I have a deep passion for doing one thing for a very long time. There's there's 15 years of three days a week. That's uh, that's (laughs) thousands and thousands of comics. We'll, We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far I get. Thank you so much for being here, Alina. You are the coolest. We really oh, appreciate you so your time. Much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This has been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could talk for like another hour. I know. Well, you have to come <laughs> back. And like Monica said, yeah. whoopsie doodle. Now you are part of it. I us. live here. Yep. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Help yourself to the, to the couch. Now I'm, adopted. I'm part of the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just go ahead and open the fridge, get whatever you need. You know, that's what we're here for. Um, <laughs> here's our needlessly complicated remote control for the television. <laughs> There's actually four of them. I'm really sorry. Oh my God. I haven't figured out how to get no. them. To them. <laughs> it's Awful. actually my real life. Awful. Awful. Monica's like, get out of your leave. I'm so, I'm so <laughs> over it. Monica, Monica your life. <laughs> Monica and Sarah, as always, you are just perfect. I would change nothing about you. Thank you for making me laugh, for making me think hard on every episode of the podcast. You are gifts to my life. Kate, thank you so much for making us so smart. You're going to count cut so many things that I said weird. Like I almost said the <laughs> C word there instead of cut. Uh, you know, we appreciate that. Thank you for making us sound great and coherent. It is very helpful. Listeners, we couldn't be here without you. You know the joke. We could, but it would be strange. And we really appreciate you being here, listening, liking, rating, reviewing, supporting us on Patreon. Patrons, what is there to say except I love you with my whole heart and then some. All right, everybody. Thank you for a great day. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at 
Witches on Comics and on Instagram at, at Witches on Comics. Our website is Brace Yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes, and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.